Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 492, with Stefan Bogardis. And this is part one of a two part series. Get ready for it. Desire is by far the best tool that a line cook could use to progress throughout their career because talent will only take you so far. If you don't want it, you're going to squander every opportunity. If the guy with no talent and no skills comes in and busts their ass every day and tries every little bit to get better and better and better, eventually he's going to surpass that person that had natural ability and then they're going to keep going. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What's sorcery? Sorcery is AP automation, digital invoicing, and time and money saved. That's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire account's payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest stefan bogardis chef stefan bogardis are you feeling unstoppable today completely unstoppable can't stop won't stop <laughs> there you know? we go that's what we like to hear hailing from long island chef stefan bogardis is a graduate of the culinary institute of america after graduating he joined the, the north fork table and in team as sous chef over the next five years he worked for two additional operations including restaurant danielle but eventually made his way back to the north fork table and in to serve as executive chef where he remains at the helm to this day almost three years later so obviously we're just scraping the surface there's so much more to your story chef but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling before we dive in what do you got for us i have a notification that i set on my phone to go off three times a day one time at 10 a.m one time at 2 p.m and one time at 5 p.m and it just says feel the joy Mm. feel the joy why do you do that um, positive mentality, positive outlook. It benefits for neuroplasticity and brain growth. And, um, it reminds me, it kind of pulls me into, um, the, the feeling of joyfulness and happiness and joyfulness is not a, uh, an emotion. It's a feeling. And I feel like it takes a number of emotions and strong diligence to make your way from emotion to feeling. So just seeing that as a, as a cue helps bring me into that mindset and that mentality and then spread it around. 
And you know, even beyond that, it's a decision, you know, you get to choose. And once you realize that you get to choose that you, you have control over your emotions, man, what a difference that makes. Have you noticed? When did you figure this out? Well, I've been sober for just about six years. So I do a lot of work with, um, in inner inward work, I guess you could call it. Um, but really I got big into yoga, mindfulness and meditation about three years ago. And that has catapulted me into the realm of self care and meditation and how to best, um, condition my cognitive abilities and in turn my high performance habits. Sweet. Um, I just made a note to dive into that as we stay chronologically, as we get your story, we're definitely going deeper there. So it, it looks like it started for you at the age of 13. That's when your professional career as a cook started. So what was going on at that time of your life? So my dad is a tile setter. He was a tile former in Stony Brook University Hospital here on Long Island. And as a side job, he was he had his own business and he set tile. And uh, he was introduced to this gentleman who was opening up his first restaurant. I went to work with him on the weekends at a very young age. I was like nine or 10 and I'd help out so that I got to hang out with dad a little bit. Turns out that business owner opened another restaurant about two years later. And unfortunately, it did not work out between him and his partner. So they decided to liquidate assets. And the gentleman named Hansi, this Austrian guy, um, who became family friends, decided to open up a food truck. Uh, I was into cooking. My mom's a great cook. I was in the Boy Scouts and I used to cook. And uh, he said, hey, Steph, do you want to learn how to work on the food truck? And so that it wasn't just like uh, dropping French fries in the fry later. We actually like made sausages from specific recipes after school during the week. And we'd like brine chickens that we'd later smoke and like do really nice ribs and things like that, where it was actually somewhat relatively intricate work on a food truck. And this was before food trucks were like the thing that they are now in this total plow horse of business plan where it was just this guy and a guy doing the thing that he really loved and taking some time to teach me a thing or two. Sweet. So reflecting back at this time, two questions. Is there a moment where you're like, damn, this is my life. I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing that. Uh, can you take us to that moment? Yeah, I, I'd work my butt off during the weekend and um, I'd get paid in cash. And while we were driving around getting set up for the day, we'd drink German beer out of the coffee cup. It was great. It was all that I needed <laughs> to know that I could do this for a long time. Okay. So I thought. So w- that was the moment where you were committed. Um, what ex- exactly was it? I mean, you said you mentioned a couple of things there, but like really, if you can distill it to its purest form, what was it that you loved? I love learning. That's 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 the thing that brings me to, back to food is I, I love learning. And mm. I just saw it as having this endless capability of refinement and education. And that's so true, man. Uh, that's one thing I love about this industry, even beyond the food, uh, learning so much about yourself and people and how to, to treat people and how people function and how to appeal to people. There, it's an endless learning. There's so much to learn. It's so powerful. Uh, the other thing I was really curious about was this gentleman, um, like maybe one of your first mentors or what did you learn about him and th- this industry through him? Anything that's worth sharing? Oh, systematization for sure. I mean, I learned, it sounds funny, but like filling up little tiny solo cups with certain sauces and things like that. Like we used to do cartoffel canable or German potato pancakes. 
And um, we used to serve applesauce on the side of them. And so we'd make all the potato pancakes and freeze them up. So we had that. And we, I learned like how to produce them, how to hold them, and then how to pick them up. And then I learned how to lay out all your solo cups on trays. And we'd have like four trays lined with solo cups. And we'd fill them all up. And then we'd put tops on them and then stack them. So I learned like systematization and doing like tasks first and efficiency and cleanliness and I mean, he, he was Austrian, so he had that European mindset where everything was clean and organized and thoroughly engineered, at least to the best of his ability. And um, that was something that really resonated with me. And that is definitely one of my strengths at this point in time because of how much effort I've put into it. Awesome, man. I could go deeper, but I feel like I need to be better about moving the story along and diving into uh, more current <laughs> events and what's going on. So uh, you grad or you end up going to the Culinary Institute of America. Um, let's just spend a little time here. Any mentors, any big moments in your life, aha moments during this time at CIA? Um, I was lucky enough. I, I got to resonate with a couple of different chefs up there. Dominic Cerrone in the Escoffier room when way back in the day when I went there. Um, Chef Gerard Viverito. Um, uh, Hubert Martini, um, there's uh, Joe DePaula. Uh, I didn't have him as a chef, but as, uh, as someone that you could go and talk to and spend some time with, he was fantastic. I mean, the, the CIA is really phenomenal at giving students the opportunity to grow in the sectors that they deem fit. And um, I really connected with a couple of chefs up there that I still stay in contact with that actually came to visit me at the restaurant. So it's very cool to see the guy who taught me how to cook the fish and now coming to the top rated fine dining restaurant on Long Island, having the opportunity to show him that growth and development that he helped facilitate. That's cool. Uh, you mentioned one gentleman that you connected with well, um, and it wasn't much about food, but about just the person. That's kind of how I heard it. Uh, well, who is this person? Joe DePaula. Uh, he's a chef at CIA. A lot of people, um, he, he's quite favorable because he's, he's a phenomenal chef and he's very well trained, but he also is really good at teaching people. Because it doesn't really matter what you can do when you're instructing people. It matters how good of a teacher you are. And I feel like he really takes time um, to, to get to know his students and to refine those abilities that they have while helping you feel as though you're progressing. Let's go deeper here, Chef, because uh, one thing that I don't think everybody understands is that if you want to be a chef, you are also signing up to be a teacher. That is your responsibility to teach and mold the next generation of people who are coming up under you to may potentially send them off to potential you know, maybe being your partner and, and opening your own restaurant with them or, uh, you know, sending them off to do their own thing. But ultimately, you got to mold them. You got to teach them up to that point. So what did Joe teach you about teaching? To love what you do and that it's OK to share what you're passionate about with people around you. I mean, it, it, it's a real confidence booster when you're not good at something and you work on it and become good at it. It's another thing that when you're not good at something, you work on it, you become better at it. You teach someone to do it. You watch them struggle and then watch them succeed. And it's this beautiful cycle that um, it, it's one thing to do it yourself. But when you're able to teach someone who's able to do something, um, it, it's really, really, really amazing. And that's one of the things that he did. Wait, I got to make sure I'm hearing this right. Uh, teach them to love what they do. Is that a good, like concise way to summarize it? Amen to that. Yeah. So how exactly did he teach people how to love something? Smile, be the best, just be the person you are and just carry that positive outlook and mentality and be real and smile, make eye contact, shake someone's hand, take a minute to hear who they are and where they're coming from, be compassionate and empathetic. And you just showed phenomenal leadership qualities. 
So I have one theory. I'm going to bounce it off you. I don't, I don't want to put words into your mouth and I don't want you to agree with me if you don't agree with me. But one thing I've noticed about really great people in this industry uh, who are able to surround themselves with great people and bring out the passion in people is by recognizing the talents in people. Do you think this is something that he was able to do? Do you think he saw somebody who had something and was he good at recognizing it and letting them know that they had something? Is that something you ever witnessed with him? Yes, it's very true. And I think that one of the beautiful things about food and one of the beautiful things about cooking professionally is when you're a station cook or when you're a there's nowhere to hide like you you are you have a tangible good that you're creating so i think that it's really easy to see um that that raw talent that raw ability yeah uh and when you do see it and think about where you are today if you're a leader a general manager an executive chef or an owner if you see somebody who has what it takes who has a skill god let them know don't just notice it, like let them know. Cause you might help them find that passion and you want to reflect on that. Yeah. I have a cook working with me right now. He's actually, um, he, he's my sous chef. Um, he's worked his way up extremely quickly. He's young and talented and has this beautiful background that brought him to where he is today, but he has these great ideas and they come from a point of my creativity that he takes to refine that when he talks about them, I say, and then we should do this, where it's a way of commending, but it's also continuing that push toward greatness. Mm. Because when you see the potential in someone and they see it in themselves, they will hone it to their ability. But it's our job as chefs, mentors, and instructors to further that, mm -hmm. to show them what else is possible, because they will take it to one place and then I'll see it and be like, that's awesome. But if I was doing it, I'd do it like this. And my mentor is telling me that's awesome. But if I saw it, I'd do it like this, man. What you're sharing with me uh, really resonates because I recently had chef glass on the show and uh, this is one of his failures. He said that he, he did exactly what you're saying. Um, but what he didn't do was he didn't continue with it. Like he would, he got it going right with one of his, his mentees. And then it, it slowly started to drift and get away in one thing I heard from you and what you were just sharing with us is it sounds like it has to be constant. Like it never stops. You get him to one level and then you, you come back and you get him to the next level. And, and it's that never enter that never ending pressure. That's because that's how I get better. And if the people around me aren't progressing, I'm not going to progress either. So it's a way of, I'm one of those chefs where I give everyone recipes and standardized ratios. And if someone like, I don't coven anything and like all my purveyors and my producers, like I am very active with sharing the love to anyone who will talk about it with me because I don't believe in secrets. I think that let's all talk about what we're mm -hmm. passionate about and what's really driving us and how we're looking, not just technically, but uh, mentality wise on philosophy uh, values. Yeah. And then let's just proliferate that and then figure out, where to go from there because if you shoot for the stars and land on the moon you're still way out of this world you know mm, awesome okay so you um you graduate cia uh and yeah. you go back to your hometown area uh and you find yourself on the doorsteps of the north fork table and inn uh why this restaurant what was going was it just random did you have intention what was going on here so I was scheduled for this apprenticeship that I was going to move over to Germany for and work in a Michelin three-star restaurant. But um, 
I was in love and there was this girl. And so I didn't want to leave CIA. So I figured that I could live on the North Fork and go up and visit CIA on the weekends to still keep the relationship going. So I was looking for the best possible uh, restaurant around. And the North Fork Table and Inn had been open three years prior by two real hardcore New York City heavy hitters named Jerry Hayden, formerly of Oriole Restaurant, who is an executive chef for Charlie Palmer. He achieved four uh, New York Times stars and one Michelin star at Oriole for Charlie. And Claudia Fleming, who won James Beard Foundation um, Most Outstanding Pastry Chef in America in the year 2000 and was the executive pastry chef at Grand Mercy Tavern and published a book called The Last Course. Jeez. So she was. Uh, a, a real heavy hitter. She was really tight with Tom Clicchio, who was the executive chef at GT at the time. And uh, they opened this restaurant with two of their dear friends who ran the front of the house. Um, again, Grand Mercy Tavern and um, uh, Marco Canora and Paul Greco, protégés, uh, Mike and Mary Mraz. So the four of them teamed up to open up this restaurant. And it was in this small, sleepy little town and it really highlighted local agriculture and supported the local food system and other passionate people who were involved in farming. So um, it was a real just celebration of the pristine bounty of the North Fork, as we like to say. So it was this beautiful thing because there was this phenomenal restaurant that was just happening that was kind of unknown, but like really going places. And um, it was right literally in my backyard. So I graduated CIA February 6th. I knocked on the back door and I started there on February 9th. I celebrated my 21st birthday on Gaumarger Station a couple <laughs> of days later. Man. And um, I went from prep cook to sous chef in just about two years with Jerry. So did you know all this before going in and knocking on the door? Were you like, wow, like what an incredible lineup of mentors, people that can teach me about this industry? Or were you just kind of like, oh, this is convenient. It's right here. Like what was going through your mind? I had heard about the restaurant before and I'd eaten there a couple of times. A friend of mine was lucky enough to, to get a job as a, a front waiter there. And so while I was working at this restaurant in Mattatuck, which is the next town uh, over, before going to CIA, I used to go there around closing time and sit at the bar alone and have an appetizer or two. And I just found the food to be super inspiring, but I didn't know much of the story. So what I wanted to do was I just thought it was inspiring and I really wanted what he had. So um, once I was graduating CIA and I knew that I didn't want to leave the country, I um, got in contact and one thing led to another. And it was just this beautiful relationship where he saw a lot in me of himself and just saw a, a really solid potential and he kicked my ass like he <laughs> taught me so much and he was not an easy man to work for but he was amazingly talented and amazingly gifted and he brought me to heights that i didn't know that i could achieve so the reason why i was asking if this was intentional because i would have given you a huge virtual pat on the back i mean it was intentional in the sense that like you were inspired by the food but if you want to be great you, you got to surround yourself with people who are great they will bring you up to their level you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with i believe that and you were surrounding yourself with four rock stars uh their influence their knowledge their their values and you will instantly acclimate to that like you you know you, you that's what we do we we when we as humans are in a space we become that culture. We absorb it. So what was this culture? What, how did he kick your ass? Take me through the things you learned, the person you became because of this guy. 
It's one thing to be a good poissonier or fish cook and know how to put the fish in the pan at the right temperature and it's dry and have it be seasoned well and blah, blah, blah. It's another thing that when you're responsible with creating a relationship with an individual who has fish and then delivers it to you at proper quality characteristics and standards and then butcher it and then use the bones and then store it for service, pick it up, put it on a plate, create a garnish for it execute that through service, break it down, and then continue the cycle the next day. And one of the things that Jerry was very good at is he was operating from a standpoint of an extremely refined machine like Oriole or Grand Mercy Tavern, but he was doing it with a true skeleton crew. So there was four of us that were operating this restaurant, and or, or at least the, the savory side of it, and we were responsible for seeing the entire loop of the system. And it was very unique, but it was challenging because we had to prep for the day, we had to order for the next day, we had to set up our stations, we had to cook and plate during service next to chef who was also on the line doing the same thing and then we had to like just do the whole entire system and it was such a unique opportunity that it provided such room for growth and such room for refinement that it was really challenging because when you're operating next to a chef who's that experienced operating at that level it's really hard to feel like you're ever going to do anything right but if you put your nose down to the cutting board and keep going and get a little bit better day after day after day after day, um, eventually you start to show progress. And then that becomes the level where you know what your mentor does. And then you're able to work together to share a vision and you're able to bring inspiration to the table, which in turn makes them grow. Oh. And I, I, I'd like to think that that's what we were able to accomplish there in my first stint. Dude, I'm loving this conversation. You're laying it out there for us right now. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that he was just really hard to work for. He, he really pushed you. Uh, he, he just uh, like really give us some like specific takeaways of how he pushed you, how, how he grew you of. I mean, you can't dive into his head, but like what what do you think was going on there? Uh, we used to do these oven-dried tomato confit petals, and it takes forever in a day, and it was summertime. We're a seasonal restaurant, right? So summertime's crazy hard. We had um, one of the four line cooks there, this woman named Cindy, would cook with Chef on brunch, and then Chef Brian and I would cook dinner service. And so I was making a chorizo broth for like a modernized rendition of paella. And keep in mind, this is circa 2010, right? So this is burned into my memory eight years later. And... Um, so I needed these oven-dried tomato confit petals to make my chorizo broth, and I was prepping outside of the kitchen while Jerry and Cindy were putting out an extremely busy brunch service, and I was freaking out because I knew that I had a quart of these tomato petals in the walk-in, and um, I couldn't find them, and they got moved, and Cindy was notorious for using a shit ton of miso plastering service and then not refilling it or telling you about it. <laughs> so I thought that I didn't have enough tomato confit petals to make the sauce, so I was trying to think of substitutions and I told chef that I didn't, that I didn't have it and I had everything else prepped that I could. I just needed to get on the stove so that I had two hours to cook in between services to get set up for dinner. And I was really in the shit. So I was running around and I was freaking out and I didn't know where the pedals were. And, um, so I did everything that I had to, and I had all this nervous energy and I still smoked cigarettes at the time. So I was huddled behind the shed, smoking a cigarette, like freaking out a little bit. And Jerry comes from around the corner and hurls this quart of oven dried tomatoes at me. Uh, luckily I was able to catch it before it hit me or hit the ground. And he's like, here are your petals. They were on this shelf in the walk-in. And I looked extensively 
And like, I thought that I, I was taking responsibility for everything, all of my mise en place on my station and in the kitchen. And I had overlooked something. And that was one of those quintessential moments of like, chef, we don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have it. And he opens the door of the walk-in and he's going to see it right away. Yeah. You know? And it was one of those things where you you were held to a different level of accountability. And the I, I will not agree with the nature in which that message was conveyed. And it's not personally how I carry myself, but I did very well in those standards. And I, I hate to say the olden days because I'm only 30, but I've been in the industry for some heavy hitters for a long time. And I, I have that old school training mentality, or yeah. at least that's that's the the environment that I found success in. Yeah. So what do you think the, what was the message? If you could distill it into one sentence that he was trying to uh, give you in that moment, take responsibility for everything in the kitchen at all times, regardless of circumstance. So how, I mean, it sounds like you were trying to take responsibility of the situation. Um, What did you learn about yourself in that time? How are you better? How are you different now after that moment? Um, Oh, that's tough. Dude, that's a great I, that's, question. I ask the hard um, questions, man. That's what I do. Yeah, I like it. Well, what what it is? I mean, now I know exactly where everything is in the walk-in. That's for sure. <laughs> but um, on a serious note, I, I'd like to just say that I think that it's just um, you're taking off the blinders a little bit. You get focused on one thing, and I I don't remember that this is exactly what happened. But there's a good chance that I could have moved them and just not seen them. Because I was so focused on one individual task that I was losing view of the whole picture. Okay. And I'd like to see that, I'd like to say that that changed in my outlook of if it was there, why didn't I see it and how could I better see it? And it's, it's to not be so focused on one piece, but to take the blinders off and to look at the whole picture. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the big difference between cooks and chefs. Yeah. And you, you know, attribute much of who you are today to the mentorship that you got from chef Hayden. Uh, and you spent a year with him at this time. I'm tempted to stay here a little bit longer. Uh, we'll come back to this time that you, you spent with chef Hayden because you, you did eventually come back to uh, the fork table, but any other lessons in this in this period of time that you can share with us before moving on to your two years at uh, Chef Balud? I can never say his name. I don't know why. Like I look at it, say it for me. Balud. Balud's uh, restaurant. Balud. Yeah, I don't know why my problem is there. But um, w- anything b- before we move on? Um, yeah, I just like to say that regardless of like my my most important message that I like to give off to cooks is don't try to be something you're not. Just try to be the the most true display of yourself as possible. Because at that time, I was a young kid who wanted so much and gave out so much. And it was like, work hard, play hard, love what you do. And just be like, at that time, I thought that I was being my best. And um your best gets better, but don't judge yourself on what you're not doing. Think about what it is that you need and then give that to yourself on a regular basis and then um, just keep on progressing. Dude, what's that look like? I'd like to say if we had video on, I could show you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, I, I agree. That's great advice. Uh, and I feel like sometimes when people are in that period of, uh, of growth, they're still trying to figure themselves out. And you said, be who you are, be authentic to yourself. But at 19, 18, or even 21, 22, 23 years old, a lot of people are still emotionally immature at that time. And it's hard to get that clarity. How do you think we get that clarity on who we are? 
I think it's a life process, and I think that it's something that you, you can work toward, but I think that some develop it earlier than others. Look at Sebastian Bra and Lyol France, who took over his dad's restaurant, Restaurant Bra. Um, he went from one star to three star in the Michelin Guide, and Sebastian took it over after his father retired. And he renounced the Michelin Guide because he felt as though it was holding him to an unrealistic standard. And it was pressure that he didn't want. So he said that he doesn't want to be part of the guide. And I think that that is a, a, a sum of deep um, contemplation and introspection because he felt as though it was forcing him to be something that he wasn't, at which time you're not going to create that same level of product that you want. So I think that by renouncing the Michelin Guide, Sebastian was trying to, to further be more authentic to himself. And I bet that that upset the Michelin Guide. I bet it upset his father. I bet it upset people of the village and all these other places around that were looking at him to lead. But he went against the curve and went, what everyone else, went against what people were expecting him to do to be true to himself. And I think that sometime that is going in on a day after you got your ass kicked on, a, on the line and being ready to be better than you were yesterday. And sometimes it's saying, I've worn out my welcome here at this restaurant. It's time for me to move on. I and I think that it's a huge, it's a huge step, but you, you can't do favors for other people. You have to do what's best for you and you have to do the right thing. I think I agree with you first and foremost. I, and I think that we live in a very like monument or what's the word? Um, monumentous monumental mon what's the word i'm looking for monumentous monumentous time we live in a monumentous time right now because for so long i think we started learning about the the benefits of standardization and the the impact standardization can have to streamline things to do things big to have control to track things right and there is something to that there is some value there but i think we've gotten we got too far in that direction of standardizing uh and I think that we're starting to realize uh, the the significance of being an individual, uh, of the, how how that contributes to our happiness and to our self identity and self development of being who you are. Uh, and we're slowly starting to break away from big standardization uh, and you just doing what you want to do, whatever makes you happy. And I think there's going to be a balance of some place in the middle, uh, but it's a very promising time right now because of just how much we're learning about social and emotional intelligence. Um, do you want to reflect on that? It's really true. And one of the things that I like to say to my cooks um, is um, in order to lead, you have to know how to follow. And I think that in order to know what it is that you need, you need to be part of the system. So I think that it, it's, it's a process and a journey that maybe not everyone goes as far like some people will be a great line cook for the rest of their life and they will spend two years at this restaurant, two years at that restaurant, two years at that restaurant, but they will never be a sous chef and other people will transcend to that sous chef level and then never go past that sous chef level where I think that people who are, who are truly leaders put in that time and they know when to keep their mouth shut. They know when to speak. They know when to ask that question why and when to go with it. And um, I think that it's, it, it is up to the individual how deep down they want to go but i think that the sky's the limit once you step out on that journey yeah and uh you figure out who you are by like you said following and trying different things which is what you did after two years of work or one year of working with chef hayden you went to uh balud dynex group um what did you do learn there uh, I was originally, I transferred and was accepted to Cafe Balud Palm Beach, and I worked with someone named Zach Bell. Um, and I was hired as the chef de partie garmage. So I was in control of the garmage station. 
And um, it was a real sink or swim environment. It was like, in order to learn how to do something, you find the person that you did it before you. And if you were lucky, they'd play by the rules. If not, they'd like do something to try to screw you over. And it was a, it was a way where like you learned that that place was really special. It was this wave of amazingly talented individuals who most of the people who worked in that kitchen, regardless of the level that you were at, most of them now are chefs somewhere in the industry nationwide. But I was there and I was kind of low man on the totem pole for a while, but I, I was promoted very rapidly. And Zach um, saw something in me again that I didn't see in myself. What did and you see I was promoted up to Chef de Partie Entremetier station. What's so I was responsible see? for all the um, vegetable productions for the whole entire restaurant, AM, PM, and banquet and catering, which with 180 seats and a full banquet and catering division out to 300 guests was a monumentous task. So what was it that he, he saw in you? Um, it, there was one time I, uh, we, I met him in the office and we were talking about something and I don't remember what it was exactly, but I remember him being like, yeah, well, there's not a lot of people like us out there anymore, Stephen. And he used to call me Stephen to mess with me a little bit because he knew that I was Stefan. But um, just to be considered in the same category. And um, again, like he saw talent is one thing, but desire is by far the best tool that a line cook could use to progress throughout their career. Because talent will only take you so far. If you don't want it, you're going to squander every opportunity. If the guy with no talent and no skills comes in and busts their ass every day and tries a little day, every hard, every little bit to get hard and better and better and better, eventually he's going to surpass that person that had natural ability. And then they're going to keep going. Where I think that I, I just had this immense desire and I wanted it really bad. And he saw like my baseline as being pretty high, but he just kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it and pushing it further and further and further. And once ultimately I got into like his category, um, he started to help develop me creatively. Mm. And he started to kind of like bring me into the conceptualization process of dishes. And um, I'd like to say that because of Zach Bell, that was what taught me to take the blinders off and to really see um, the, the kitchen as a, as a whole and how to be part of a big team doing a big thing at a very high level. Man, that was an awesome tear you just went on and I loved every second of it. And it's really resonating with me right now because I literally started listening to Outliers uh, by Maxim Gladwell two days ago. And the first couple chapters of the book is all about, have you, are you familiar? Yeah. The first chapter of that book is all about, Hey, when it comes to extreme greatness, um, you just got to be so good at something. Uh, and once you, once you like basketball for, is the example he, he uses, uh, you know, if you want to be good at basketball, you got to be tall, but once you don't have to be seven foot, you just have to be so tall, like, you know, six foot. And then after you get over that six foot, six foot mark, then it's, it's all about desire to be better, to keep showing up, to grow, to, to, to practice, to work on your skills. And whoever puts the most time in, whoever has that desire to be the, the best, the, the biggest desire, those are the people in life who do incredible things. It's the work you put in the desire to be amazing. 10,000 hours is the number he throw at, throws at us uh, in that book to like really be a master. Um, so man, yeah, you're spot on. Uh, what were your thoughts on that book? Um, I thought it was incredible and, um, I'm actually, it's, it's been a while since I've read it, but it makes me want to go back through it again. Um, yeah. I will say to piggyback on the point that you're making, one of the reminders, um, 
I, I got a stove burner tattooed on my left wrist and it has love, passion and desire. And desire is the part that goes and faces into my body so that I could see it. It's on the bottom of my wrist. And so that I could see it every day. And that ultimately is my why that carries me through and that gives me motivation every day is reminding me that I have that desire and then I have that drive and then I want it really bad because I've been doing this now for 10 years at a pretty high level and I, I want it more than ever. And I think that the, the, where we're at now is the best that we've been, but I think that we could still go further. So the second part, uh, to this question to, to dive deeper into this, this topic we're on right now is what is it that you desire? Oh, I asked myself that question so much and it's so challenging. Um, I want to get better. I, I want to want the things that I have. That is something that I, I, that's kind of a mantra is to want the things that you have um, and to have the desire to get better. Like I want to show progress. I'm so terrified of plateauing. Like you want the things that you have. So to me, that sounds like a very, just a, a place of gratitude of being happy with what you have and being grateful for what you have and not necessarily wanting more, uh, because that isn't necessarily a recipe for happiness. Uh, but let me ask you this then compared to what you wanted then when you were hungry, when you were 21, 22, 23 years old, you're coming up. How has your desire changed from that point to where you are now? Uh, just what you look for, because I, I still don't know very much about food. Like there's people who are way better at this than me, but I know enough to where I'm able to teach some people. So I don't think that I, I work on like the physical process of knife cuts and things like that. Um, but just not as much. Now I'm looking more toward um, the idea of creating my own team and how to make that happen. Um, I've been approached about places and backers and it's right now I'm part of something that's so great to go out on my own, I think is really hard. So now that idea of how I can improve and get better is if I'm, no longer part of a team and I'm asking what my greatest self is, I think that it's going to be taking over the ownership of a restaurant and executing my vision, but the team has not been in place yet. Mm. So I think I'm, I'm very actively looking for that um, young manager who shares the like front of the house or wine knowledge like how i feel about food and i want to make this beautiful thing happen i'm looking for four new people i guess you guys you hear that he's yeah. he's putting it out into the universe right now if you're listening to this uh he'll share his contact information at the end but good on you man because honestly most people i think that's where they get into trouble they don't realize that their restaurant isn't about them and their ability. It's about how many people can you surround yourself with that have the abilities and, and strengths that I lack And together. How can, you know what I'm saying? Like they don't, they make it about them and not the team. And you recognize well, you don't have that team yet, which is so brilliant. It, it's tough because I could have hit so many pitfalls if I would have taken some backing and taken a space and went into it thinking that uh, egomaniac, like I could do this all by myself, I would have failed and I would have crashed and burned and probably owned a lot of people money. But um, I think that, like I've always said since I was in culinary school, I was like, when I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right way. Yes. And um, I think that 
I always think about how I, I have my business concept and I have my idea and I'm kind of that fancy guy and it's going to be a little tiny restaurant where we're going to do a, a small thing and there's not going to be a lot of money to be made, but it's going to really care about the product and care about the experience. And I think about how when we do a full house of 40 to 50 covers a night at two to $300 a head, who am I going to trust to count the till at the end of the night when I'm at home with the wife and kid? Mm. You know, and that, that's a big thing. Like, who am I going to trust night in and night out to count the money and to lead the team in the closing procedures and then to come in tomorrow and want to do it again? Yeah, man, I'm loving this conversation. We're getting more current time. So I want to bring it back to the the chronological order we've been staying on up to this point, but maybe we'll, we'll end up back here before we say goodbye. Um, so you end up back at uh fork table and in, uh, with chef Hayden this time under not ideal situations. Uh, so why did you end up going back? Yeah. So what happened is Joe was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, which is, a, a um, a, a neurological disorder where your body pretty much starts to shut down, but your mind is completely active. He was 45 years old at the Ugh. time of diagnosis. And, um, it was kept under wraps pretty deeply for about 10 months prior to me coming back. But a friend told me about it. And, um, my friend who is a bartender, best friend from high school. And, um, I reached out, I talked to him and I had three weeks of summer vacation stacked up from Dynex. And so I offered to take my summer vacation out here when the city was slow and we were busy out here and I came home and um, we just clicked right away. It was like I was the hands for the active mind and he let me into his brain and his process. But instead of him being able to do it, he relied on me to execute. And it was just like the most beautiful picture perfect progression for a young cook to go from I know nothing to I know a little bit to I can do this for you to I know how to do this, you know? So take me through what that experience was like of him opening up his mind to you. What new things uh, beyond just cooking? I feel like we could really dive deep into that. But really what the mission of this podcast is to really just get at who people are, what their values are, how they see the world. So how did he open up his mind to you in that regard? Yeah. So the first week that I came back, like he knew when I was going to arrive, um, he had just so happened to make this amazing relationship with this beef producer who was dry aging some American Wagyu out to like 90 days. So this was again, like seven, eight years ago. So it was before the whole dry aging thing really took off. And, um, so there was $900 a short loin and he bought three short loins and four pounds of wasabi rhizomes. So he spent epic amounts of money and we have like an 80 seat restaurant. It's small, you know? And so he spent like three grand on beef and a thousand dollars on wasabi rhizomes and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. And he physically couldn't hold a knife. So he told me this young 23, 24 year old cook, okay, hold the knife. And what you want to do is go against the bone and start to release the tenderloin. And he like walked me through step by step how he would handle this amazing product that he was able to source. And so he um, provided that opportunity to bring me in on. So I had the idea for this dish. 
I started to work with where I was going to source this from. I met this person and this person and this person. We checked out these products. We thought this was best. So we bought this. And then we're going to do this, this, and this to it. So again, it was showing me the entire loop from point of um, inspiration all the way through conceptualization and execution, which was really, really, really unique because it's super rare that you get that whole opportunity from an individual. But it was based out of necessity. I think that that's the key is that Can I Jerry- slam on the brakes here real quick, just because I don't want to lose this thought and I'm loving what you're giving me. And I hope you don't lose your train of thought in this process, but yeah. why have we gotten so far away from that? The sense of that level of communication, that level of teaching and that level of mentor, mentee, apprentice and master. You know what I'm saying? Why, why don't we work that close with people where they are talking through their thought process and teaching other people to do that? I think we don't, we don't, we shouldn't have to, reach this level of having a disease like ALS to communicate like that. And I'm not, ba- I'm not bashing Chef Hayden right now, but do you understand what I'm saying? I, I do a hundred percent. And I'm going to give you a two part answer to that. I think that it's because most people or most young people are looking for a instant gratification and they're not willing to work in for it. And then that puts the mentor at a point of fear-based emotion to where they're going to hold on to their ideas instead of freely giving them away because I don't think that the mentor is going to see the return on investment from the mentee. They're going to teach someone and instead of having that person go through the part, the process of executing that idea that they just learned, they're going to take it and go somewhere else with it. You know, man, I hope if, if we accomplish anything today, it's that we just, I think, really clearly articulated this. And I feel like if there's going to be change, if we're going to transform the industry, right, we need to identify this and make it known and teach people that this is, you know, how far away we've gotten from what it means to be humans about those relationships. I just had Mike and, Nino, a, a culture expert, and he said culture is really at the end of the day about relationships. And how do you build those relationships by making it so tight that you literally need to be in the other person's mind to, uh, to grow to that potential to, you, you know, I don't know if I'm using the right w- words to explain this, but I hope we just take this moment away from today's conversation. Thank you, chef. Absolutely. It's beautiful. Um, okay. So, uh, we're back at the fork table. Um, you're going through this horrible, uh, beautiful and horrible at the same time of losing a mentor, but also, uh, get gaining so much like, you know, from this mentor, any other moments in this time with the chef Hayden, that you kind of, a transformative time for you or a, tran- a transform transformative moment for you. Yeah. We're about to hit on a pretty big topic here and I just got the low battery notification. I'm super sorry. Could <laughs> I run out of the room and just grab my yeah, charger? Do what really you're going to do. I'll clean it up later. I'll be back in two minutes. Take your time. chef. Actually, while chef is stepping away, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. (laughs) Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love. 
running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call 1-866-830-0691. Mention Restaurant Unstoppable and receive 10% off your first three months. And say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member FDIC. Super sorry about putting you on hold for a second. Dude, don't worry about it. Uh, it's totally I just fine. I wanted to make sure that we didn't lose this. Yeah, very important, man. I'm sitting over here thinking to myself, holy shit, this is a great conversation. I'm loving it. Mind of the Chef has nothing on Restaurant Unstoppable right now. <laughs> uh, how are you enjoying this, man? Are you having a good time? Are you enjoying it? Am I, I'm not pushing too hard? No, what I really like is, I, I mean, I'm super duper open. And as I said, like I've done a, a good deal of interviews and what i like about it is you you, you're going deep but you're bringing it back to center so it's been a really good cohesive flow and i feel like you're letting me express what i want and then you're further validating it by bringing up a point or a relevancy and you're you're quite good at this and i i feel comfortable and i think uh we're we're gonna get somewhere really awesome thanks man i appreciate that um i was gonna ask for feedback at the end because uh, I'm always trying to refine, um, and you know, 500 episodes, like they say in, uh, outliers, it's a uh, 10,000 hours of just doing <laughs> what you do over and over again, three episodes a week. So, uh, I Man. hope, I hope I'm getting better. <laughs> I think I still have a far way to go, but I, I appreciate that recognition. Thank you. All right. We got our chargers. We're ready to go for another two hours. We have to, uh, pick up your train of thought, chef. Okay. So I feel like the time that I spent with Jerry was fantastic. His disease was running rampant on his body and his health was really diminishing. And he was a very strong person mentally, but he, he was often depressed at times. And there were periods of times where he wasn't really present and then he'd be present and it, it became very challenging. And the relationship started trying to get strained a little bit. And um, I started, I was young and driven and I thought that I had so much And I thought that I started being more of a contribution to him than he was to me. And um, I was also very deep in substance abuse, specifically with drinking. 
And so I put the brakes on that and got sober. And so that really changed my outlook and my mentality and my focus. At this point in time, that relationship that I had with that girl that kept me from Germany was um, progressing. And so I started to look for an exit strategy because we were at the point where he had a certain amount of control that he was not willing to relinquish. And um, it was it was making me not be able to get what I wanted and what I thought was making me develop. So I opted to not be at my best. And ultimately, I, I got fired from that restaurant. Like I was the chef de cuisine and whether it was just or fair or not, like I am willing to accept the fact and to point out that about six months into sobriety, I got fired by my mentor from my dream job. And it was not on my time frame. I was going to work until the end of the summer and it was in early May. And I went into work after Easter and he fired me because I was miserable. I was horrible energy and it was just, I had become so arrogant and so ego driven that I wasn't able to get out of my own way. And um, so the girl and I ended up moving to her hometown and they ended up hiring two very famous chefs from New York city to come out and replace me. So I was good, but um, I thought I was better than I was. And I thought I was contributing more and I just had some toxic energy going on in more ways than one. Um, I will also say that through substance abuse, um, it makes it easier to manipulate people. And once that substance is out and people are more apt toward introspection and what it is that they need most, more often than not, the, the self-care thing comes up and it will really change dynamics in relationships. So I think that that was a pivotal role for me was getting sober and looking at my needs and being able to be honest with myself saying that I wasn't getting what I needed and that I was not helping someone being so negative. So even though I was fired, it was a mutual parting of the ways and we both realized that the, that the relationship wasn't working. Before I left for Rochester, we did make amends and we did sit down and talk and have lunch. And every time I came home to visit, I'd visit him at his house because he was quickly bedridden and um, he couldn't really move. So I'd go and I'd sit with him and visit. But um, at that point, I moved on and I said goodbye to North Fork. And I was looking for the, uh, the house and the kids and the family. And um, I found that up in Rochester Man. at a country club. Chef, thank you so much for opening up and getting real with us. Um, you had mentioned before we hit record at the very beginning of this conversation that you were free until six o'clock. I don't think I'll need that time, but if you're willing to make this into a two-part interview, I think I could pull out a lot more. We could go a lot deeper, uh, but I don't want to abuse your time. Are you willing? Yeah, let's do it. All right, sweet. Um, so to reflect on what you just shared with us, you mentioned uh, he wasn't willing to relinquish control. What control were you looking to get how what where were you what was it giving you what were you expecting what did you want what were you not getting i wanted my name to be used i wanted people to know the work that was being done and uh, you could call it selfish or not i'll let you be the judge of that but he worked his whole life to to get to a certain place but at a certain point um i started being the one that was producing you're looking and, uh, for basically to build your ego, to build uh, your brand, to build uh, you know just the recognition that this is my work. Um, is that safe to say? 
Yeah, everyone knew what the restaurant was, but no one knew who I was. Why did he think that you weren't ready for that recognition? Because um, I wasn't as good as I was supposed to be before people knew me. Or like, I was still too young. I wasn't that good. Looking back on my food and how I was leading people and how I was mentoring people and my leadership styles, I wasn't developed enough. And I am so grateful that I did not have that opportunity because it would have really shifted my career had I not left and had I not moved on. I think that uh, it, it kind of forced me into this like work in progress mode. And um, it, it really ultimately catapulted me into to being a stronger person and a manager and a leader as opposed to um, a, a selfish maniac. So reflecting back at this time, knowing who you are now, knowing who you were then um, you weren't ready as far as skill set or you had developed a lot of skills. What else might have been coming into play here as far as emotional readiness, emotional, uh, was it because he, he, he was looking at you and seeing maybe that you did have a substance abuse problem? Did that play into it? Well, I had actually become open with that and had started in removing myself from that situation. So at the time when I was fired, I was sober about six months. So I think that we were all very much open about that. But um, I think that there was a, you know, it's, it's so hard to go back because it's also easy to say, like, I like to think that I was so much part of a picture when I can't speak on someone else's behalf for where they was coming from where they were coming from. So I'm not entirely sure that what happened was entirely my doing. I think that a good portion of it was, but I also think that his desires and the partner's desires and um, it, it strayed away from my desires. So, which is a, an important thing to recognize. I feel like, uh, in order to be on the same team, you got to be pulling in the same direction. You have to have the same vision. Um, the partners, you know, he, he spent his life working up to this point to create this baby. This was his vision. This is how he saw it. He, this is his namesake, you know, and he, he knows he's leaving this world. He knows that this is going to be his legacy. I mean, I can kind of see where he's coming from and I, you know, uh, and this is in no way, I don't know this man at all. I'm not speaking poorly about this man at all, but I can see how he would want this, this, he wouldn't want to give this up. You know, I can see no, that. I don't think anyone would. No, exactly. I can see that. But at the same time, but isn't your legacy about paying it to the next generation to, to, to carry it forward, to, to, to pass the torch. And he did that with you, with his knowledge, I guess. Uh, I'm getting very kind of like super, like what if devil's advocate right now? Um, <laughs> but I'm just trying, I'm just throwing out thoughts. What are you, are you getting any new thoughts with the thoughts I'm throwing at you? I mean, I think that everyone, uh, what is there? There's 7 billion people on the earth, right? There's so there's 7 billion different ways to think about this and yeah. to look at it. Yeah. And I think that it would be uh, the, the majority's identification in saying if someone worked their whole life to achieve a goal that they'd want to hold on as long as possible. And I do agree with that. And, um, it's a perspective that I've thought about. I mean, at this point in time, it was almost six years ago. So I spent a good deal of time thinking back onto this situation in this time of life and uh, all these conclusions that we're talking about. It's, it's places that I've been personally, but I don't know if I've ever shared about it. Yeah. So, okay. Um, 
Thank you for opening up. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we did have a few more topics to hit on, and we already decided we're going to make this into a two-part uh, deal. And I, Again, thank you for that. Um, you leave, you go to uh, Locust Hill Country Club. Knowing what you know now, um, going to this restaurant or this this country club, did you get that spotlight? Did, did you feel this? Did you feel, you know get this itch scratched? or uh, What was that whole process like? So when I left the North Fork Table and Inn, we had a 29 out of 30 in Zagat. We were top 30 restaurants in America by them. We had all the top ratings by all the local papers. Jerry was nominated four times in a row for James Beard Foundation, Most Outstanding Chef in America. Le Place du Grand uh, gave him accolades and certificates in Europe. And I mean, it was all like it was crazy how much love we were getting. And then I moved and... I, it was like the polar opposite. It was such a growth period. I was hired as the executive sous chef. Um, I was in charge of a la carte restaurant for the club. It had like 570 members. We were the Northeast regional headquarters for the LPGA, which was kind of cool. So we'd host a major event and um, there was, it was a big place, but it was very different um, skill set. And um, it was very different uh, environment than anything that I had ever been in. And so not only was I hired as the kind of mid-level management in the culinary operations of the club, but I'm in a completely demographic, different demographic than the North Fork Long Island. So like the, the access to the produce and to the food was very different. And the expectation of the guests and the diners were very different. Um, so it was a real kind of, I, I did not get, I mean, it was hard nights. Like you, to be respected by those around you, you have to earn that respect. And when you get hired as manager, I could tell people that I worked for Daniel Balud, but a lot of them didn't have any idea who Daniel Balud was, much less what the Michelin guide was. So a lot of those, like the nuances and like the, the mentality of refinement and progression, a lot of that was lost. And um, it, it was really hard to try to figure out how to lead people that maybe didn't want it very much and were looking at it as just a job. You know, they didn't have that same passion, that same fire that I was accustomed to. Did you um, have any regrets? Uh, well, I mean, it wasn't a regret. You didn't choose to leave. You ultimately got fired. Do you have any regrets and maybe uh, that desire for the recognition that you weren't getting, have, letting that be known, letting that be obvious? Not at all. Um, I mean, everything worked out for me so beautifully. Like I, what I was looking for was I was burnt out. I was freaked out. I didn't know which end was up and I got a steady job for good pay. That was way easier than anything that I had ever experienced before. And it gave me a ton of time to work on me professionally, uh, personally. So I like, I did a lot of work on myself and my personal relationships and I was getting what I needed to money-wise and work-wise. And for the first time in my, in my life, I started to find this beautiful balance that was free of any consciousness-altering substances. And that was really where, like, I first started doing yoga. Yes. And, like, I had this really, really, really... Um, I'm happy you're going here. It sounds like this is where you really started the mindfulness of... Uh, you know, and so many people don't start here. I think this is really worth starting... Uh, you know, people, you know, you got to put your head down, you got to do the work, but before you can ever go open your own place, before you can ever really develop a brand core values, a vision, a mission, you got to know who the hell you are. You got to know, you got to spend time just with you inside yourself, figuring it out. 
exploring what matters to you. Um, and you can never really create a reflection of what that is until you have the clarity of what it is. So what did that process? I think this is like, I want to go through this process with you because I think we could all benefit from where to start and you know, how to progress getting that clarity on who we are, what matters to us and just being mindful and uh, present. So what did that look for? What did that look like? How did you start this process? Oh, what a cliffhanger. Oh man, I hate to do it to you guys, but that's where we're going to stop today. But don't worry, we're going to pick up right where we left off on Wednesday. So if you guys like the way this conversation is going, uh, then be sure to meet up with us on Wednesday. This this follow-up interview or the wrapping up of this interview will happen at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time Wednesday Sorry to leave you in suspense, but man, some great conversation up to this point, right? Uh, so far for me, guys, I don't know if you picked up on it too, but the big takeaways uh, is just the power of desire, right? The desire to get better and have that driving you and uh, knowing you need your team too is another little tidbit I got in here. Uh, I asked Chef what was holding him back from doing his own thing and he said, you know, I don't have my team yet and I think that's a great point. I think that uh, people underestimate the power of the team. We we try to go out and do this on our own, but the best restaurateurs out there have a, a team. They're surrounded by the most incredible people they can get their hands on. Uh, and that all starts, that whole process of building your team starts way before you open your own restaurant. Ideally, you want to have these people in play before you open your restaurant. You want to be opening your restaurant because you have these people and you know you can pull it off. Uh, he's wise to know that he doesn't have that team put together yet. So uh, interesting stuff there. And then lastly, uh, just being mindful of the message that you're putting out there in the chef's situation, uh, his arrogance and his ego, it got the best of him uh, to the point where uh, he almost lost sight of what this industry is all really about. And I really do uh, kind of respect his, his chef for, you know, firing him because of it. Like it was a great reality trick, a, a great reality check and a, a huge life lesson in uh, chef. Stefan today is better because of it. So really cool stuff there. All right, guys, like I said, we're going to pick up the conversation 3.30 a.m. The part two of this. Uh, I don't know if you guys will be up that early. Maybe if you open a bakery, you will be. But this episode will be waiting for you Wednesday. Uh, and like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at RestaurantUnstoppable.com. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me what your challenges are. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter to Eric Catchatory and Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. Keep sharing this sucker. The more people that know about Restaurant Unstoppable, the more I can do to serve you guys. And, and also, I'm starting to do one-on-one, one-hour coaching calls. So uh, if you're hitting a wall, uh, if, if you're opening a restaurant and uh, you're curious about technology, uh, you have questions about uh, creating your vision, your, your mission statement, and all these things, or you just want me to brainstorm, or maybe you want help connecting with one of my past guests. Uh, if I don't have the answer, I know somebody who does. I can guarantee you that, and I'm here to serve you guys. So head over to the show notes. This is episode 492. You'll find a banner to set up that one-on-one chat with me if you want to get to brainstorming. And uh, I guess that's all for today, guys. Um, as you're listening to this, 
on Monday morning, I will be driving to Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm back on the road, guys. A life back on the road. I was able to record 45 episodes in a month and a half the last time I did a road trip. So uh, I'm going to be spending this summer on the road. Uh, giving, like I said, headed to D.C. first. Uh, then I'm hoping to make my way towards Texas. And I'll be in Texas between... Uh, we'll say mid-July to early August, and I'll be making my way north towards Seattle in Oregon and slowly down the California coastline. I'm just going for it. So uh, make sure you're following me, Eric, at Restaurant Unstoppable on Instagram if you want to find out where I am and maybe cross paths. I'd love to meet you if you're out there. And I'm always looking for a spare bed. So uh, get at me if you're anywhere between here, New Hampshire, and Texas, or Texas and Seattle. If you're between those three points somehow, some way, let me know. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.